This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, My Life Connected, a memoir. And the author is Vera Shivani Hussey Forbes, and Vera joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Vera. Hi, Steve. It's very nice to talk to you, even for this distance from Texas to San Diego. Well, great to have you here, Vera. This is quite a story. It's your story. It's filled with all kinds of challenges, but it also has. It's also filled with great accomplishments. Let me read what you've written about your book, just a a short statement. You say this, this is the memoir of a mentally abused girl and woman who refused to become an emotional cripple despite the cruel diatribes that were heaped upon her almost daily. Instead, she Mm -hmm. opted to use her God-given talents and gifts to the best of her ability and a whole world opened up to her and of course, that's what we're going to talk about. You know, you uh-huh. marvelous uh-huh. people you met along the way, actors, artists, musicians, mobsters, murderers, <laughs> and lovers. Right. So, you know, oh, yes. we're, we're going yeah. to talk about some of that. Okay. Well, Vera, uh, must, have been, must have been quite a challenge to write your book. It's, uh, as we've pointed out, it is very detailed and filled with your life and so since your life is so filled with so much the book is what 300 and some pages long isn't it yes it's uh with with the 12 pages of pictures it's 402 pages which i had originally had it at 500 something and they you know the publisher said oh we can't (laughs) you know that'd be much too big and it's 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 big it's really got a lot of well i've lived a long life and uh i've got it right from Earth on to uh, within the last uh, several years. So, and I've really had so many wonderful, exciting experiences connecting with really incredible, incredible people. Uh, after I was able to get myself out there, uh, despite the the uh, terrible emotional abuse, and writing it was difficult at times when I was because I was told I should. My daughter-in-law, who wa- wanted me to do it, said to please try to write everything. And uh, I almost blacked out a couple of times when I was reliving some of the experiences, and I find myself sobbing. Mm. So, you know, this happens when you've lived a long life, apparently. Well, you must have been at times uh, laughing and just smiling, too. Oh, definitely. That's one of the things. In fact, I have a poem that I put in there uh, where... Uh, it was. It's in a way, it's a little morbid, but I do love to laugh, and uh, I've had a very happy, really happy life on top of the the not so happy one. I really have, I've, and that's because of the wonderful people that I've connected with. And, and that's I think what that's this the point book is all about, right? Mm-hmm. Your memories of all these great people, and mm-hmm. as you say, you've kind of lived two lives. You had the first. Your first life was a life of 
basically abuse from your mother and your husband. My first husband, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and he was hurting my our three sons by, you know, he knew that if he was mean to them that he would be hurting me. And, uh, of course, in my day uh, with three children, even though I was singing and making most of the money for the family, uh, it was very difficult to get away from that kind of thing. You know, we, we, he would be okay for a while. We, we had therapy, and he would be okay for even sometimes almost two years at a time. But then he, he just couldn't help being his whatever it was that was causing him to be the way he was. And so uh, that was hard. That part was hard, although we did. I have stories in there of some things that we did that were fun, and they, uh, they are in there. And, uh, uh, but really, when I was in show business, that's a whole, I had to write that as a whole section all by itself because I had lots and lots of interesting experiences during those 25 years. Yeah, you both sang jazz and opera. We'll find out about that in a moment. But let's go back a little bit further. You were born in the 20s? Yeah, 26. 1926. Did you ever figure out why your mother was so mean to you? No, uh, actually, we've had, um, there have been several uh, ideas put out as to why they think, uh, some some people that I've talked to think that she was just jealous of my accomplishments, and I think there, we never, never, never knew because the families never really talked about anything like that. But uh, I think her mother, my grandmother, Baba, who I was used to, I write about, where I went uh, quite a few years, but where I found my wonderful jazz-loving uncles who taught me how to sing jazz. Um, but she, I think, wanted to be an artist or something, and was told no, she was not allowed to do whatever. And I think. Really, that was part of it, but I think even before that, she didn't want me because she'd had a difficult birth with my brother two years before, and probably is why they got a divorce, because she didn't have to want to have anything to do with having any more children, uh, and didn't have to, she didn't even really know that I was around the first years, six years in Berlin, because uh, my brother and I had a nanny, a lovely young Fräulein who really took care of us. I mean, my mother was off at luncheons and parties. I never saw her, except when she'd come in and uh, say goodnight, uh, seriously. And my father was not around because he was setting up offices all over Europe for GMA, GMAC, for General Motors Corporation. So that's, uh, you know, but when we got back and they got a divorce and she had to take care of us, it was as if she really didn't want me around at all. She just told me terrible things about me. So you grew up believing yeah. you were ugly, untalented, unlovable. Yep, and, exactly. And mm-hmm. it, it just continued on after you got married, the same kind yeah, of uh, diatribe, same. as you say. Exactly, yes, same same thing. And I've, I've read that that happens a lot to abused people. They sort of jump from the frying pan into the fire uh, without realizing it. And I say, like I said, though, we did have some good times in the marriage, uh, because he, I, I insisted we had to have therapy, and he would go to therapy. But in his case, my mother, we never never did anything. But I think in her case, too, when people are mean like that, I think really there's something bothering them themselves that they have, they have to lash out to feel better about themselves. And unfortunately, uh, I was a victim of that kind of person. So, uh, But I was so lucky when I decided I was not going to be crippled by that and I you know put myself out there and 
because I loved singing. I loved to let, dance around and show myself off. And, you know, uh, it, it's very possible that uh, she thought that I shouldn't be doing that. But uh, mm-hmm. I really, I needed to uh, associate with other people and connect with people. Otherwise, uh, a couple of times when I was uh, during the marriage, I actually felt suicidal for a brief moment, but then I realized my my boys were respond. You know, I was responsible for my boys because their father was just a, a nothing to them. Not, you know, he wasn't helping them or interested in them at all. So that uh, I I just said no. That I can't do that. I have to survive for my kids and myself. And uh, it was as a result by putting myself out there and singing and meeting people and smiling, being happy, laughing. I met so many wonderful people, and I think this is why the publishers think that I have a platform, because they, they believe that, you know, when you smile and are friendly to people, it comes back for you, and that's really what happened mm-hmm. to me. You know, it really does help. Well, your uncle's... Yeah, I'll go ahead. You've already My mentioned uncle? that your uncle's taught you how to sing jazz. How did you get involved in opera? Those two seem to be on the opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> And they definitely are. <laughs> Actually, uh, both families, the grandparents' families, they were all musically talented. And uh, But, of course, the grandparents only wanted them all to be classical musicians. So most of them played the piano. But one of the brothers, the, one of my younger, uh, my, my mother's younger brothers, loved, uh, he would not, he would not, uh, do anything with a teacher. He could not read music, didn't want to read music, but he was what we call an ear musician. And you could whistle a mm-hmm. song, a tune to him that he'd never heard before, and he could play it with all the proper chords on the piano. Now, that's a talent that I wish that I had. But so, that's as a result, we sang in choirs with, you know, with the soprano voice. But I loved mm-hmm. the jazz because they loved jazz, and they would play jazz. Uh, my younger brother, younger uncle, his younger brother, used to lie on the couch playing his fiddle, a hot fiddle, and they would have me just blast all those songs out there, and I was doing all the all the old jazz numbers, and that's how I learned to... And I love it because it had the same kind of rhythm as dancing, tap dancing, which I also loved. So I think that's why I went with the jazz voice for quite a long while, even though while I was in art school, I did study with an Italian maestro and really developed quite a classical soprano voice as well. Now, some might find controversy in your book that you're such an advocate of sexual freedom. Well, uh, was yes. that just something that responding to the way you were treated early on in life, or how did that no, how did that evolve? No. My brother, having been uh, promoted two grades when we got back to the states, uh, thought he was, you know. And my mother told him, "Okay, you're the man of the house now." And he started bossing me around a lot, and. Uh, I just felt at the age of eight, and he was getting, you know, he he had freedom to do whatever he wanted to do. She just, you know, and, and she had a real hard thumb on me as far as anything I could do. So I decided around the age of eight that I wasn't going to tolerate that nonsense, that I had every right to do whatever uh, boys do, and I've continued that belief right through my, uh, as I got older, and... Uh, I just felt as if it felt right for me and I wasn't hurting anybody that I would do what guys were getting away with. And so that's how the sexual freedom 
part came about because when I was in uh, art school, or just before art school, that's when I met my first lover who had been a friend from the time I was a little girl. He was a lot older than I, and uh, he was just a, a nice pal who lived next to my one of my girlfriends. And uh, when I was, uh, I think, around 18, I decided, hey, you know, I don't want to be a virgin anymore. And so... <laughs> I have a cute story about that, how I sort of seduced him, uh, because I was, you know, I always thought he was pretty great from the time I was a kid, but nothing ever happened before that. I know that usually uh, people assume that something sexually might have happened, but if anything ever did, I certainly have no memory of it. So uh, if, if anything did, it would have been completely submerged, but I don't think anything did. I just have felt that women should be able to do you know, be as free as guys are and not be having bad names told, told about them. And fortunately, uh, that never happened. You know, I never, in fact, I never heard of anybody saying that I was immoral or anything like that. So uh, I, I wasn't promiscuous, but I did feel if I wanted to have sex with some nice guy that I really liked a lot, then I felt free to do so because men do. I don't know why women can't either or two. So that's my feeling there. That's your story, and you're sticking to it, as they say. That's my story. So you're yeah, over- sticking to yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Overall, <laughs> overall, you just call yourself a survivor. You just are a survivor, and you want others to uh, have yes. hope. That, you know that yes. people can pull themselves up and and move on and be successful, no matter what. Exactly, exactly. If, but the thing is, they have to let themselves realize what is special about themselves because everybody is special in some different way we're all different but at the same time we all really connect and they have to just get themselves out there and figure out what it is that's different and special about themselves and let other people know about it because if they stay home and don't open the door to life it's not going to happen it might be like they say you know i guess it's an old saying but uh, life either happens to you or you make life happen and that's what I did. I really, I really put myself out there and sang and danced and learned new things all the time and just connected with wonderful, fascinating people uh, that I wanted to tell about because as far as I'm concerned, life is all about the people around us. You know, that's it. People are our lives. Well, as we said at the beginning, if you really want to know all about the great people she met, some, uh, some very interesting people, since she talks about them as, as actors, artists, musicians, mobsters, murderers, lovers, and more, she's had a That's very right. full life. Her name <laughs> yeah. is Vera Giovanni Hussey Forbes. Uh, Vera, tell us how to get your book and tell us about your website as well. Okay, well, my website, first of all, is not quite up yet. It should be tomorrow, I'm hoping, because they, it was, there was a glitch in it, and they had a wrong picture, which now has been corrected, but it should be up tomorrow. Uh, and the book is available uh, in all three formats, as an e-book, uh, hardcover, and softcover, on iUniverse.com and Amazon.com and also BarnesandNoble.com. And, in fact, uh, when I put up my name, if you use my name, Vera Shivani Hussey Forbes, uh, I'm finding other places where it apparently is going to be available. Uh, one of them was Tower 
and another one I can't remember what it was called. It had four names, four letters. But anyway, um, if you try it with my name, it, it seems to be that probably will be the link for the uh, website. I'm pretty sure, but I'm not positive at this point. But I hope that we you will read it because um, I, I think it shows how no matter how down people put you, they're the they're the ones you got to avoid as much as much as possible, and just get yourself out there and show that you are a happy person and you can be special in your own way because. That way you'll find other people who will appreciate you, definitely. I mean, it does happen, because it happened to me. Well, thank you so much, Vera, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. I'm so happy that I was able to have this interview with you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into TogiNet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on TogiNet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled The Heart Remembers, a memoir of personal growth, and our author is J. Lee. Welcome, Jay, to the program. Thank you, Jay. I'm happy to be here. This story is really a personal journey and a memoir of a very difficult time in your life. Share with our listeners the background and why this book was written. Well, uh, Jay, my husband uh, and I had really an idyllic life on a West Texas ranch, a ranch that he grew up on that had been in his family for five generations, and... um, he became ill, but it's a quite remote uh, area that we lived in, and um, we went to just 
local doctors, and as time went on, um, different symptoms and different problems, but um, we were really unprepared for his diagnosis of liver cancer about a year after he became ill. And actually, he was diagnosed on a Thursday, and he died on a Saturday. We had Mm. three days notice. And so uh, it was quite quite an eye-opening experience. Um, I was caught totally unprepared. Our life had been really a storybook life. Uh, We had a ranch that welcomed visitors uh, to come and and have ecotourism and stay at the ranch. And so I was was left, as I suppose many widows are, with uh, not only dealing with uh, the grief of losing your spouse, but with uh, trying to take care of several businesses and a ranch. So um, as time went on and things uh, began to work themselves out, I did what I usually do, which is to write about it. For me, writing is quite a therapeutic endeavor. And um, after writing for about a year, I decided that maybe maybe my experiences could help others, uh, not just women who are sudden widows, but men who lose their spouses. And um, I'm in the baby boomer generation, and... I know that we're all facing or about to face loss in some form or another. So I uh, wrote it to help other people if it does. I hope it does. And your book really is benefits-based. Your desire is to reach out to folks that might go through a traumatic experience or traumatic life change such as you experienced. And how did you initially get through the the shock of uh, a spouse die? Well, I had a few, I, I developed a few uh, survival techniques, I'll call them, um, and looking back on them, I should, have, um, I should have known some of these, but one thing that you need to know uh, initially is that you don't have to do anything, you don't have to be busy, you don't have to have your life continue, no matter how many businesses you had, give yourself some time to just go inward and to to rest. You, you don't have to, you can contrast your busyness of your life with rest. Let family and friends make arrangements. Sleep and rest as much as possible. Of course, you're going to be surrounded by people uh, who are trying to give you words of encouragement. And I would say as a second tip, listen to those words because while some People, you know, we're all at a bit of a loss when we give condolences to someone. But many, many times I heard things that I had never heard before and that I had not thought about myself. So let their words of comfort sink in and help you and give yourself time initially to just drop business as usual and let your mind and your spirit and your body rest. So important to listen to friends and and relatives who may have stories you're not aware of. I visited with a friend of mine whose grandfather passed away a week or so ago, and neighbors came out of the woodwork with stories that he was not aware of, of the gratitude they had for his life well-lived. 
Exactly. You know, I heard that so many times. Uh, my husband had grown up on this ranch, and he impacted so many people because he was, he just, his biggest joy in life was to share that ranch with other people and introduce them to uh, some of the things that you do in the outdoors, like hunt for gemstones, and uh, he loved ranching, he knew about cattle and other livestock, and I was totally surprised by all the people who came and said how he had touched their lives. And that's quite comforting to hear that. And so you need to listen well. And I think that you need to eventually, I came to the understanding that really after death has occurred, that person moved on or you know, according to your own belief, that person isn't here anymore. That person is not what you're dealing with. It's really about your journey. Your journey has just begun. And so I think you need to learn to recognize the signs of the stages of grieving. This is not a a Kubler-Ross type book that goes through the stages of grieving. It's more an anecdotal account of one woman's journey through this process but if you uh, if you come to learn that there are certain stages and there are when they occur to you you will recognize it and you'll be able to say to yourself oh this is why I'm so angry today this is why I'm just ready to I'm just mad at the world or this is why I'm just so sad today Uh, you'll go through those stages and it's helpful to know what the stages are I've noticed people who go through the grieving process that busy themselves to keep from thinking about what really has taken place. It's important to uh, give yourself permission to to express what you're feeling, isn't it? It is. It's important to be able to express what you're feeling, and that's what writing is for me. And it's important to give yourself permission to feel it. Uh, So many times we... um, what I've heard other uh, motivational speakers talk about is we should on ourselves. I should be feeling this or I should not be feeling that. Give yourself permission to feel what you're feeling and to go with it and to take it inside and not try to distract yourself. Um, You're going to be stronger for it. And as you get through the process, I think one of the One of the gifts of this healing uh, process is that you truly have come through. You've learned some things about yourself and your own character that you didn't know before. And at least I did, and a couple of my friends did, and I I hope that that's the way it comes across in the book, that uh, you will go through this experience and you'll be able to come through the other side a different person and probably a better person. What practical strategies did you discover in the process of rebuilding your life? Well, the practical strategies are going to more or less depend on, for one thing, the type of family that you have around you, if indeed you have family around you. I don't come from a very close-knit family, and so... I had challenges on that on on that account. But one thing you can recognize is that as you come face to face with your spouse's death, 
really you encounter your own mortality. And go ahead and delve into your feelings about death. Are you afraid? What are you afraid of if you are? Do you have your own spiritual beliefs about death? Uh, what are those beliefs? Uh, just take stock of your own feelings and beliefs in a rational way. And for me, I wrote them down. I think it's helpful to write them down. A great advice. Yeah, in dealing with your friends and your family, follow your heart and follow your gut. Don't don't let yourself be pressed into anything by others. And and so many times people just want to reach out to you and, and help you, and that's a wonderful thing. But you're in a very vulnerable state, and you can start to feel compelled to do things that your friends suggest or your family demands. And um, I found it pretty helpful in the early stages to have one trusted, confidant friend that I could tell things to, and they would take my wishes out to the people who wanted to help. You don't have to control everything. People will be bringing foods and cards and condolences and um, everyone understands whatever you're doing. If you're not there to receive them, if you're in your own room and a friend is receiving guests for you, that's fine. Great advice. Uh, If you were to introduce this to someone, the book, how would you do so? Well, I would say, um, I, I guess I would start off by saying that You know, we all have this ticket. Uh, We are not immortal. We are going to die. We are going to leave friends and loved ones, and they are going to leave us. Why not try to be a little bit rational about it? Why not get some tips and advice, uh, maybe a few signposts that certainly won't make it any easier, but it will make it more understandable when you lose a loved one. And um, my hope is that 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 will be the way it is for people who read this book. When I was in the throes and the initial stages of grief, uh, I'm a big reader. I like to read, and I went to the library to look for some books. And really, most of the books I found were very clinical, outlining the stages of grief that you would go through. And um, I, I wasn't ready to read anything like that. I didn't want anything like that. I wanted to know if somebody else had survived this this event that had happened to me. And I did find one book that was quite well done. It was called uh, The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Gideon. And I read that. And that's more of just an accounting. So if you can just sit down and take account of yourself and your situation I think it's very healthy. You're a multitasker. You also have been involved in creating music. Was there any music expression as a result of this process? Or was it writing that you looked to for solace? Jay, actually, I was lucky enough to have a a great aunt who was a writer. And from the time I was about 12, I just idolized this woman. And she she was a great mentor. And I, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be just like her. And um, I started writing songs um, back in the 60s, uh, mainly because I taught myself to play the guitar, and and I didn't play well enough to do other people's songs, so I made up my own. And um, I also wrote short stories. And um, so 
I've just found it so helpful, uh, so clarifying to uh, write, even if it's just a journal, and I, I don't mean that in a demeaning way as if even if. Uh, journals are wonderful. So I've, I've written all my life. I've had one song published in a book of songs that was published uh, for the proceeds to go to uh, clean up American rivers. And uh, that book was uh, Sing for the River, edited by uh, a woman named, her last name was Riddle. And um, then I, I have a book of short stories on the way and uh, a novel that I'm flirting with, I'll say. Um, I just like to write. I like to write. And uh, I find it to be uh, entertaining for me and uh, helpful when I'm working out some of the challenges that life can, can throw at you. Well, thank you for sharing your story. The back of your book is recounted this way. It presents an honest, intimate, and down-to-earth account of one woman's struggle to turn tragedy into enlightenment, and shows that hope exists in all things. The title of the book, again, is The Heart Remembers, a memoir of personal growth. The author, Jay Lee. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Jay. Where do we get copies of your book? You can get copies of the book uh, from iUniverse.com, from Amazon.com, uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's uh, If you have a Kindle or an e-book, uh, you can get it uh, that way. Uh, there are hardback copies available and paperback copies. Excellent. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Ken. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Built in Detroit. Story of the UAW, a company, and a gangster. Our author is Bob Morris. I welcome Bob to the program. Good to be here. This is a fascinating story. You've written 388 pages. It recounts the story of a family member, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It's, uh, uh, it's about my father, Ken Morris, who was an active UAW man from 1935 until 1983, and even into his retirement until he died about five years ago at age 92. 92. 
Mm-hmm. You have, besides writing, you have and currently represent the Southeast Michigan Council of Governments at the state capital, Lansing, Michigan. You work part-time in that position, and it's given you additional time to do some writing and preparing this book for publication. Tell me about the background. What motivated you to put this in writing? Well, I'm very fortunate. Uh, as a young man, my dad worked very hard. As a young man, he took my brother and I on uh, weekends to all kinds of labor and political events. So I got to see really the leaders of a generation from on the political side, Jack Kennedy, Hubert Humphrey, Lyndon Johnson, people like that, Martin Luther King, I was at the March on Washington, to uh, the labor leaders of a generation. And uh, heard the stories of from my dad of the 1930s and 40s and struggles on the picket line and so forth. So I thought there was a real exciting story to tell and a story that most people have no idea uh, existed. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's about Detroit. And Detroit, as we all know, has been a, uh, you know, it's been in the headlines lately for a lot of different reasons. So I thought people needed to know a little bit more about Detroit as well as the labor movement. And uh, that's the primary reason I got into it. Tell me about the first main company that your dad went to work for in Detroit. My dad worked for the Briggs Manufacturing Company. Briggs uh, built bodies for car bodies for Ford, for Chrysler, Dodge, Plymouth, Hudson, uh, Packard, those companies, much like Fisher Body built bodies for GM cars. And so it was a tough place to work. It was known as the toughest place to work in Detroit in terms of wages, in terms of safety standards. And it was, uh, you know, it turned out to be a very exciting place to work. They employed in one plant between 15 to 30,000 people. So it was a, a big, huge plant on the east side of Detroit, which ultimately was organized by the UAW in early 1937. Your dad was a hard worker. Had a tough time as a door-to-door salesman and then was able to go to work in this company and bluffed his way into a position, didn't he? Yeah, he eventually he started out at the bottom, but he he fell in love with the labor movement. He had come here, as you say, a door-to-door salesman, come from Pittsburgh. He had no family in Detroit, and when uh, labor unions started uh, developing, he... It just got into his blood, and the UAW became his family. In fact, my mom used to say, your father married the UAW before he married me, and the UAW is his first love. And and that's just the way it was. But he, he volunteered for everything, event, you know, became a shop steward, worked his way into his local union's uh, executive board, eventually becoming president of his uh of his local union, and then later moving on to the top levels of the UAW. Tell us about an event that happened early in his career where he was beaten and didn't like to talk about it much. Right. In After the war, my dad came back uh, from the war with his new wife who we met in Texas, and uh, they came back. He wanted to continue his career in, with the UAW, he gets back, and his local union elects him unanimously to a high-level position in the local. 
And then within six months, he gets beaten nearly to death. Uh, several uh, fractures in his skull, broken arm, broken leg, bad back, uh, uh, you know, black eyes that, uh, uh, you know, all done by two thugs uh, carrying, wielding blackjacks that, uh, that, that, that nearly the doctor said they weren't expecting, they weren't sure he was going to live. It was a vicious, vicious beating, and it leads to essentially the latter part of my book, which is about the investigations of this beating and a series of uh, violent attacks, actually assassination attempts, on other UAW leaders, including Walter Ruther and his brother Victor Ruther. And the motivation behind that, just to keep them quiet, keep them inactive, what was it? Uh, quiet, but really to intimidate and weaken uh, the the strong labor leader, and frankly, the honest labor leader. There were, uh, there were the, the mobsters, the, the mob guys who did this had, to some degree, their own agendas. By getting rid of uh, strong labor leaders, it made it easier for them to get into the plants to do illegal gambling, sell illegal cigarettes, which was a big deal back in the late, uh, in the late 40s after the war. And so... So to get rid of strong labor leaders was a very important objective for any number of reasons by, uh, uh, by thugs and other people. I'm sure you had a target audience when you began writing this. Who do you think this is going to appeal to? You know, I think this book will appeal to a lot of different people. Uh, number one, people who like nonfiction books that uh, are easy to read, uh, tell a good story, with a bit of a mystery, uh, because there's a, an investigation that takes, as I said, about a third of the book. And uh, but it will also people who are interested in Detroit in the labor movement. I'm hoping a lot of union members uh, or people interested in unions will read this to see what it was really like to organize these plans back in the 30s and 40s. Uh, I, you know, but again, uh, everybody who so far has read the book. And these are people who are not either political or pro, you know, real strong labor people. They love it. They just say it tells a great story, and uh, and they're riveted by it. So, of course, I love to hear that, but uh, that was my intent, and so far, so good. I noticed in the book a, a photo of your dad taken while he was in the hospital after that severe beating. How difficult but, was it to go back and find those archives of the things that were happening during that time? Well... We're very fortunate. Uh, that particular photo was a family photo that uh, he had. Uh, my dad, while he was in the UAW, he ran for office his entire career. So uh, when you run for office, you keep photos and, and those kinds of things. He, so we had some stuff. There's some family photos in there, one of he and I when I was a little boy of about four years old. Uh, but but a lot of a lot of the photos are primarily Detroit news photos, but photos found at the Wayne State University Walter P. Ruther Labor Archives, and that's where I did most of my research. Uh, I spent about a year and a half of uh, my life in the, their reading room, uh, going through archives, double checking really much of what I had heard as a little boy and a young young man, but to verify the facts and then to. Uh, uh, then I learned a lot more, and that led me, as I followed the truth throughout the story, it led me to different uh, different places. Were there any elements of self-discovery in putting this book together, and how long did it take you to do so? 
Well, it uh, you know there were stops and starts, and you know in trying to put this all together. I like I said, I spent about a year and a half researching. Uh, started writing, and that took about another year and a half. In that same period, my both my parents died about the same time, and that ended up taking a lot of energy focus away from the book for obvious reasons and uh and some other things happened in life but for the most part it was about a three to four year uh process and then the challenge of getting it published was another uh you know completely new chapter that took a while and then you know going through the publishing process of rewrites and editing and uh and trying to make sure there's no mistakes in the book so you know, it was it was about a six, about a five year process. And is there any underlying theme or message that has risen to the surface from this writing? Well, there's a couple of things. One, I really want people and hope people will have a better understanding of unions and the union leaders that uh, really help bring about decent wages, benefits, safety in the workplace. Too many people just assume a uh, a, a uh, in a factory that the employer provides these safety glasses or gloves or uh, coveralls and so forth. In most cases, that those standards were negotiated by labor unions. It didn't just happen. Benefits, health care, those things may be enjoyed by some people, but in almost every case they were initially negotiated by organized labor. So these are important elements. And the other piece here that I found, and a little bit of self-discovery, I guess I knew it, but I didn't appreciate it. The labor leaders of the 30s, so many of them, were so young. While many didn't go to college, they were incredibly well-educated. These guys were young, and they were, uh, uh, you know, I feel like a high school education in the 30s was the equivalent of of a four-year college today. I was very, very impressed with uh, the kinds of classes people took. Even people who wanted to be a tool and die uh, person ended up having to take accounting classes. Really? Uh, I don't think that goes on today. I don't think so. That's that's an amazing discovery just in itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the writing, the writing style, you know, people really learned how to write. It's very clear, uh, you know, just things that I never had thought about, but when you're in the archives and you're seeing written uh, documents, uh, you know, it's, it, it is pretty amazing stuff. In the book, there are a lot of exciting activities, a lot of exciting things that take place. What one scene do you think stands out from the rest and might make a good movie idea? Well, there's a lot of movies here. I think the one scene, if you will, that would start out the movie would be, frankly, the uh, beating of my father that took place when he was driving home on uh, May 31st, 1946, to an apartment uh, house where he and my mom lived. And he was driving an old 1938 Ford. I remember during during the war years, no cars were built. So the cars were old and creaky for people who weren't making very much money. And when he opened the car to get out, he was attacked, beaten viciously, as I indicated, Somehow he managed to crawl into uh, to their house, to the front door of their house. Uh, my mom heard scratching on the door, 
she opened the door and sees my dad essentially in a pool of blood collapsed on the ground. She somehow gets him in. She gets some help from neighbors. Uh, the police eventually come. And in all of this, my dad's in and out of consciousness. And years later, he said, when the police came, the police officer said to my mother, little girl, where are you from? Mm. And she goes, well, I'm from Nebraska. And he goes, little girl, this is a town full of violence, tough people. And little girl, you don't want to be involved with this union stuff. If I were you, I would just go down to the bus station and go home. You don't want to be here. And uh, and then uh, my dad was taken to the hospital. Two days later, one of his good friends, his lawyer, uh, sees him. He walks, he sees his, goes home, talks to his wife, and says, "I don't think Ken's going to make it." So I think that right there is the start of a pretty good movie. It absolutely is an amazing uh, visual, just in in your telling of it. Yeah. What was the most challenging part of putting this book together? Well, the challenging part really was trying to keep it concise and to the point because there are so many elements of what I discovered that that I uh, I just you know it, you know the truth just took me places and so it became a little longer book. And uh, it's about 300 and actual 20 pages in terms of the, the, the book itself. And uh, but but the but it was a uh, you know, that was a challenge uh, because people say keep it short. But then, well, one of the things I learned about was uh, the Keefe offer. The U.S. Senator uh, Estes Keefe offer had a committee called the Keefe offer committee that studied criminal activity uh, with uh, legitimate businesses. He came to Detroit and he studied uh, the beating that took place on my dad, and brought in the Briggs Company and other, you know, the the thugs who was who were believed to be behind this. And there are scenes in that uh, there, and there's photos in the book that could have come right out of the film on the waterfront. You know, I, I saw that movie, uh, uh, you know, last year, I guess, and I'm looking at the. The background in these pictures, uh, when they're testifying in front of the Senate, uh, the uh, Congressional Committee, and you know, I thought that's the same scene that's in my book, and uh, so so uh, I kind of got a twofer in there in terms of uh, uh, another scene for a movie, but but it was true that you know I didn't know anything about the Keefe Offer Committees, so that was a big piece of it. Uh, you know, I I learned about a trial that had taken place in the 50s. I knew nothing about, but it was about uh, about the violence against the UAW, and so so there are a lot of things I learned, and there are a lot of uh, elements that uh, that I think will people will be interested in. Bob, tell me your impression of Walter Ruther. Well, I was very lucky as a young man, not really a child. I, I was not only able to meet Walter Ruther, but I had the opportunity to hear him speak many, many times. Walter Ruther was a special person. Let me just say a couple of things about Walter Ruther that people may not know. He was a labor leader, but a lot more. Time magazine in 1999 listed him as one of the hundred most influential people from the 20th century. And just think about that. That's an amazing uh, legacy in and of itself. 
But another one, a lot of people think of Detroit as being the arsenal for democracy, and it was. The concept came in a speech that Walter Ruther gave in, 19, in 1940, when he talked about if we could just, if we stop building cars and convert the auto industry to building airplanes, we could produce 500 planes a day. That's a Walter Ruther idea. He was, of course, a creative negotiator. He helped create the American middle class, a shrinking middle class that we have today, but he helped create it. He was big on civil rights, big supporter of Martin Luther King. He helped organize the March on Washington. He created the first American HMO. Uh, he, the, first, the first environmental speech I ever heard was in 1966, and it was from, by Walter Ruther. He's an amazing guy with great, great vision. Fascinating history. Copy on the back of the book reads like this. In Built in Detroit, author Bob Morris, Ken's son, tells not only his father's story, but also the UAW's development, the battles with companies, the struggles within the union, and vicious attacks on Detroit labor leaders in the late 1940s. The title of the book, again, is Built in Detroit, a story of the UAW, a company, and a gangster. Our author, Bob Morris. Thank you, Bob, for joining us today. Where do we get copies of your book? The book can uh, be picked up in a number of places. The easiest place is probably Amazon.com or uh, Barnes & Noble, their website. Just go to the search engine and type in Built in Detroit, and it should pop up. Uh, I, I have a website. Uh, it's called uh, it's www.builtindetroit.net. And uh, you'll learn a little bit more about the book. There's some photos on the website as well as a place to uh, purchase the book. So there's uh, there's uh, three good options right there. Thank you. And any other books in the future? I think there are. Uh, there's an old uh, novel, unpublished novel, that uh, I, I'm going to probably dust off. That's about Africa. But then I will come back, and there's a story about Henry Ford, the original Henry Ford, and the transfer of power in the Ford Motor Company to Henry Ford II that I think bears uh, uh, being told about so people can understand what happened there. It's, a, it's an amazing story in and of itself. Thank you for sharing your insight. Again, the book okay, is titled thank you. Built in Detroit, a story of the UAW, a company, and a gangster. Our author has been Bob Morris. Bob, we hope to talk to you in the future. I hope so, too. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.